All right. Good morning, everybody. What a day, huh? What a day. You're like, huh? (laughs) Not used to it. That's why. You're like, you're like still shocked. It's warm outside. The sun is shining. Um, We are having a a church picnic. Today's Communion Sunday. So um, after service, we're going to throw some hamburgers and hot dogs on the grill and uh, just hang out and fellowship and, and have a good time together. So uh, I know you're all super busy, but if you if you are so inclined, we'd love to have you stay and join us and 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 hang out and and uh, break bread with us. We are in oh yep June first. We're having a church work day um, here. There's uh, just some minor things that that need to be taken care of and stuff, and um, so we're we're gonna we're gonna do that on June first. Hopefully the weather will cooperate with us. But there is a sign up sheet out there. Um, just so we can kind of get a, an idea of, of uh, man and woman power <laughs> and what we're going to be able to accomplish on that day. So uh, keep that in mind as well. <clears throat> Is that it? We are in Exodus chapter 38. We're getting down to the nitty-gritty here. Um, it's interesting to me, and, and, and I, do you guys remember the Bible codes? Remember that whole thing? Um, where there was there was Bible codes, and um, you know, in between, if you if you looked at the spacings in between the words, and each spacing had a numeric value, and there's this whole thing where you could find basically hidden messages that were that were supposedly in the Bible, and there was some really pretty cool stuff that went along with that. But um, <clears throat> you know, it's it's funny because within the church, uh, we're <laughs> You know, you ever you remember the Braveheart? Remember that movie? And Edward the Longshank says the problem with Scotland is that it's full of Scots. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I thought it was funny. <laughs> but that that's the the problem with the the church is that it's full of people, right? And people are only ever going to be people. Um, and so if if we ever expect for our our worship experience, our church experience, our collective fellowshipping experience to be non problematic. You're, you're, you're in the wrong era, right? Just go to bed and wake up after Jesus comes back, right? Because that's the only time when everyone's glorified that everyone's going to be completely in unity and it's going to be just holy, holy, holy as the Lord God Almighty. Uh, until that day, you know what? I'm sorry, I can be annoying. You know, it's just the plain, simple truth of it. How Nikki stayed married to me this long is a mystery, right? Uh, but that's who we, this is why the, the, the epistles are full of instruction to the church in how to deal with one another, right? I mean, yes, there's a tremendous amount of theological uh, uh, truth and depth and just profound uh, things concerning the nature of God and the persons of Jesus Christ and how we relate to God through Christ. But there's so much in the New Testament that is instructions to the church on how you deal with the people, right? This is how you deal with your wife. This is how you deal with your husband. This is how you deal with one another. We are imperfect people. We live in an imperfect world. And that's the reason that one of the visions that we have as a church is to keep it as simple as possible. As simple as possible. If this church were to grow to 5,000 people, probably unlikely, but if this church was ever to grow to 5,000 people, we would just put up a big metal building on a concrete slab, right? 
so that we could bring basketball hoops in and out of it so, so kids could play around and we could bring tables in and out so we could fellowship together and I could store my dirt bikes in the back. And other than that, uh, I guarantee you, I promise you, uh, I, 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 there would never be a light show, uh, there would never be uh, smoke, and there would never be uh, anything that's flashy. You know, one of my favorite Chuck Smith stories, those of you who, who don't know who Chuck Smith is, uh, he's the guy who started what we call the Calvary Chapel movement in California. He had this crazy idea that he was going to start ministering to the dirty hippies that nobody would let into church. You know, for you young people, back in those days, you know, not only were people not begging people to come to church and putting in coffee houses in the church so people would come to church, they were telling people, you can't come to church because you stink, right? And you go get a haircut and put some shoes on, you dirty, filthy hippie, and then you can come to church. And Chuck Smith had been led by the Lord to, 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 to begin a, a work at this little country church on the edge of town, this little white church building, and it was called Calvary Chapel. And the Lord put a burden on his heart to reach out to these hippies and to let them come just as they were. Uh, and, and, to, to do, to, and to just worship and to, to learn about Jesus Christ. And they began to come in flocks and droves and they had to put up tents and all these things to contain the people because of the simplicity of the message and the fact that it was for everyone. And it was, it was a beautiful thing in, in Chuck Smith's ministering to the hippies. But as every other, if you, you study church history at all, as every other movement that's ever been within the church, as time goes on, people begin to get involved. It's not just a guy sitting up on a stool with a guitar and a Bible anymore. People begin to get involved and you have committees and you have boards and you have all this other stuff and it, and it starts to become more of a production. And don't misunderstand me, uh, I'm not saying that those things are bad things. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to make a different point that eventually someday I'll get to, Okay. Um, but, but one of my favorite Chuck Smith stories is, is, is you know, when their church, they had, I think they had like 30,000 people attending at one point, multiple services with oh, their overflow room had, you know, 10,000 people in it, you know, just crazy, huge work that the Lord had done there. And, and one day the worship team's up there and it's just one of those worship days where just everything, everyone's hitting their notes, hitting the licks, everything's right. The singers are on point. And one guitarist was up there and he was just feeling it, man. He's like, you know, all this stuff. You know what I'm talking about, right? And just, oh, and, and really like, like drawing some attention to himself. And I don't know if it was intentional or not, but Chuck Smith saw it. And so Chuck Smith got up out of his seat and walked up on stage. People were like, what the heck? And he walked over to where the, he followed the cord where the guy's guitar was plugged in and he went, donk, and pulled it out. And the guy was like, lesson learned. We're not here to watch you. We're not here to see you put on a show, chump. We are here because the Almighty is here. Because the Bible promises is that where two or three are gathered uh, in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Are you here because of Jesus today? Uh, can I get an amen? amen? Okay, then Jesus Christ in spirit is here in the midst of us. And friends, that's enough. That's enough. 
It ought to be enough. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like this. I don't like that. And so we're going to shop. And so we're going to, I don't like the way it does this. And I don't like the way it does that. And look at, if you're not called to go to a certain church, it's okay to move on. It's okay. You know, I'm pleased to, don't ever misunderstand. I don't want to keep you here or make you attend here or anything like that. If you feel that this is not where you're supposed to be and God moves you on, praise the Lord that God's working and moving in your life. But we don't church shop. We go to a place because Jesus is magnified there. His name is proclaimed. His word is taught. And God is first and foremost and preeminent at the center of every ministry that happens there. That's why we go to learn more about him, to study his word collectively together. You guys ought to be studying the word of God at home. And maybe some of you do a much better job than I do when you're bringing the word to your family. You ought to know the Word of God without me, without, without Dad. You ought to know the Word of God on your own, through your own personal study and seeking His face. But we come here to, in His presence, collectively study the Word of God together and allow His Spirit and His presence to move through this place, hopefully, and collectively, together as one heart and one mind, being a part of the body in, uh, of Jesus Christ, to be moved in a direction of ministry and to be encouraged and uplifted and exhorted and corrected, maybe even be, by our brothers and sisters. That's the purpose of the fellowship. It's an aid station, not a rock show. It's an aid station. Now, case in point is the manna. The manna. And it's, it, I love the Old Testament. You do. Why? Well, I love it because it is such a phenomenal... You go through the history of the nation of Israel and it is such a phenomenal example of how we are. Look at, if you read through the Old Testament and you're studying the history of the nation of Israel and you're not going, that's me, that's me, that's me, you ain't reading close enough, right? Because it is human nature that we study. I love the fact that God decides he's going to feed the people with manna. The people are hungry, and so when the manna first falls from heaven, and that's what manna means is what is it, right? And so they're going, manna, 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 you know, what is it? And it had a sweet, a sweet like, uh, I don't even know what coriander tastes like, but that's what it says it tasted like. And it had a, a kind of a honey sweetness, and it was palatable, and it went down easy, and it provided sustenance and nourishment. It gave each individual everything that they particularly, specifically needed to maintain their health. In other words, if you had a certain blood type or if you had a certain kind of thing where you were deficient in this vitamin and mineral or that vitamin and mineral, manna would provide that to you. Because it was from God, and so it was completely nutritional. And it provided for every single thing that you needed to maintain good health. But it didn't provide and, and give everything you wanted. Right? <laughs> What's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> manna. You know. Oh, I'm sick of manna. What's for dinner, Mom? I know. Manna, you know. And grumbling begins amongst the Israelites. Why? Because I'm sick to death of manna. I don't read the Bible because it's what? Be honest. Boring. Sometimes. I'm the only honest one here, huh? <laughs> and maybe it's just me. I'm sorry, Lord. You know. 
It's boring sometimes. Sorry. When we're going through Exodus chapter 38, we're like, he made an altar of burnt off. I know. Acacia would. I know. Go. I, yeah, I read that part earlier. When we read and study the Word of God together, we do it as, uh, as, as with every other aspect of our relationship and our walk with God through Jesus Christ. We do it by faith. Faith. God, I believe that this is your Word. And I believe that you gave us your Word, that it would bring sustenance and nourishment to my soul. And so I'm going to consume it even though sometimes it ain't palatable to me because I want wings. I want Twinkies. Right? I want wings and I want Twinkies and I'm sick to death of eating unleavened bread of the Word of God. It's bland, it's boring, and it gives you everything that you need. Everything that you need. That's in the Bible when it talks about that everything that, that we need for life and for godliness. And is there anything else besides life and godliness? Everything that we need for life and for godliness is found in our knowledge of Him and what has been given to us so that we may know Him. The Word of God, prayer, fellowship, communing together. These are the things that God has given us so that we might know Him. And friends, that's enough. It's enough. It ought to be enough for us to just gather and worship together. And hear a guy who sometimes is okay and sometimes his voice cracks and sometimes we hit a wrong note. Richard's always on beat, it seems. You know, poor Richard. But it's enough. Because you know why? This is where God's called us to be. And this is the word that God's given us. Now, I say all that to say this. Chapter 38 is boring and repetitive. It's boring and it's repetitive. And it has phenomenal, phenomenal truth. And it's a picture of our relationship and certain aspects of our worship and how we relate to our God. And so we're going to go through that. And do you know why it's repetitive? You know why? Same reason you repeat things to your kids. How many times? Just once? Twice? Three times a lady, right? You got to tell your kids 25,000 million billion times, right? Every time. How many times do I have to tap once more, you know? And God knows this. God understands this about us. And so, guess what the Bible has in it? Repetition. Repetition. We've already studied these articles of the temple, of the tabernacle rather. We've already talked about some of their significance. Here it is again. So guess what? Let's talk about it again. Amen? Amen. Exodus chapter 38, he made the altar of burnt, uh, of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its width. It was square and its height was three cubits. He made its horns on its four corners. The horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid it with bronze. Now, the bronze, the reason the, the metal, the bronze was used is because it has a very high melting rate. 
It has a very high melting rate. In other words, it could withstand the fire that was needed to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices upon it. And that's why bronze was used. Now, all throughout the scriptures, when, he, when, it, when the Bible talks about horns and it speaks of horns, it's a symbol of power. The power of, of, the, of the goats, the power of the sheep is in its horns, right? You see a sheep, just a sheep, just a regular sheep. And you, uh, the sheep, right? Yeah, and then you put the curvy horns on it. And suddenly it's not as cute, right? Because those things are powerful. There's a reason that the, the I don't even know what, what city they're in anymore, but the Rams, St. Louis, is it, is it now? They go back to L.A.? Okay, whatever. <laughs> There's a reason that their symbol is the horns. You know why? Because that's where you lower the boom, right? When you picture a ram, you're not supposed to look at a oh, little fuzzy, fuzzy lamb. You're supposed to, in your mind, picture that National Geographic show when the rams are going boom, right? And ooh, the impact and the crushing hits. That's what you're supposed to see. Horns are a picture or a symbol of power. So what is God saying with the horns on the altar? There is both power in the sacrifice and there is power in the judgment. That is the place where judgment meets sacrifice. We, all of us, the Bible says, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, that being Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Well, before Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for our sins, God gave the children of Israel the sacrificial system so that their sins might be atoned for that their sins might be overlooked, that their sins might be covered for a time until they commit sin again, and so that they could stand before God and not be consumed by his presence, so that they could stand before God and he would be able to hear their pleas and he would be able to hear their prayers because their sin now had been atoned for. Sin cannot exist within the presence of God. When we talk about hell and when we talk about being separated from God, you have to understand it's, it's not God, you know, and the Bible does say that God is angry with sin every day, but it's not the Jonathan Edwards sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of way, where God is <laughs> give me a shot, just give me a chance. That's not who our Father is. But he is entirely good. He is 100% holy, just, and true, and sin cannot exist in his presence. God the Father does not physically step foot and land his feet down on planet earth until the old heavens and earth are passed away and the new heavens and earth are created. That's when God the Father finally comes down and makes his fellowship physically with men as it was in the Garden of Eden. Because until that point in time, there's still sin on the earth. All during the thousand-year millennial reign, there's sin in the earth. And Jesus is judging them. That's where it talks. It says he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like, pover- like pottery. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is not going to be, we would appreciate it if you would do the right things. It's going to be, you will do the right things or there will be immediate judgment. That's what the kingdom years is going to look like. And a lot of people are not going to like it. We think it's just going to be, all oh, for us it is. But a lot of people are not going to like the kingdom years because they are going to be forced by the physical arm of Jesus Christ to obey the word of God. 
That's why at the end of the thousand years when Satan is released from the abyss and he goes out to deceive the nations and collects them an army that the Bible says is like the sand of the seashore to surround Jerusalem to make war against the Lamb. We're sick of his rules. We're sick of obeying his truth. We're sick of obeying his word. We want to do things our way. Satan says, I got just the thing for you, but first we got to overthrow him. Wow. That is the final judgment on the sinful nature of mankind. Sin cannot abide in the presence of Almighty God. It can't. So when the Bible talks about being separated from God for all eternity, it's because of this. I am a sinner. And friend, whether you want to believe it or not, you are a sinner. For some of us, it's easier to accept than for others. And sin separates you from God, period, point blank. The Bible says that if you're guilty of breaking one point of the law, you've broken the whole thing. It only takes one breaking of a law to make you a law breaker, correct? You can play semantics all day long, but when you go 65 and a 45, you a lawbreaker. <laughs> You're a lawbreaker. Well, I don't like the way that sounds. I was just in a hurry to get to work. I know you were. Lawbreaker. <laughs> I know. I know. Not only do I want to break the law, I get angry when people in front of me won't break the law with me. I'm trying to go 70 and a 20 here. Would you get out of the way, you know? And, uh, you, I mean, you see, that's what leads to the road rage, right? In other people, not me, you know. Listen, the nature of mankind is sin. That's, it. that's the nature of mankind is sin. And the nature of Almighty God is holiness, justice, and truth. Something has to be done about our sin. And so God gave the atoning sacrifice of the shedding of blood. But the horns on the altar speak of the power of God's judgment, that sin will be judged. There has to be judgment of sin. It cannot abide in God's presence. And also the power of the sacrifice, that the atoning sacrifice, the shedding of blood, would be acceptable even to the point of our sin being removed. Hallelujah. Now, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews goes through this quite extensively, and he talks about the fact that many bulls and rams and turtle doves and animals had to be offered over and over again and again. Why? Simply because of the condition of our hearts. I offer a sacrifice for the sins I've done, and I go out, and on the camel ride home, there's a guy going slower in front of me on his camel. He won't break the law with me. And so I begin to yell and scream at him. And then he says, what are you going to do about it? So I get off my camel, I take my cane, and I go, what? And I've broken the law again. And now that has to be atoned for. It never ends. But all of this was speaking to us and speaking to the children of Israel of the fact that there was a need, that there was a necessity for an ultimate sacrifice there had to be. Why can't we have? And we need a sacrifice that will cover all of my sins, which are many. Oh, that we could have such a sacrifice. And God just puts in hints 
and drops hints and prophecies about the coming one and the coming redeemer and the Messiah of Israel. And he will be bruised for our transgressions. And he gives them these hints and he puts these things within the word to show them that sacrifice is coming. Now, it's interesting that within the scriptures, there's a couple different times where men who had done something wrong uh, would, and knew that they were going to be put to death for it, would flee and run to the temple. This is later on in Jerusalem. And they would take hor- you guys remember, and they would take hold of the horns of the altar as though that was going to provide for them mercy. You don't understand what the altar is. That altar was not a place of mercy. That was a few steps further. The altar is a place where judgment meets sacrifice. Clinging to the horns of the altar was not going to save. And none of, it didn't save any of them. They pulled them away from the altar and put those guys to death in those accounts. The altar is a place of sacrifice. It's a place where God's judgment is satisfied. Now... Verse 3, he made all the utensils for the altar, the pans, the shovels, the basins, the forks, the fire pans, and its utensils he made of bronze. Now, any of you guys uh, or girls who have a fireplace or a fire pit or a wood-burning stove, you have some of these utensils, right? You got the little dust pan, right? You got the little brush, and you got the little shovel, and you got the to, to pick and poke and put. This is a big fire. This is like a fire that's going to be continually going on the altar, and they're going to be having to move sacrifices around all that hoof fell out. You don't need to get it, back, get it back in there. So that's what all these utensils are for. Also covered in brass, not just to be able to withstand the heat, but also brass is a metal that is a representation of judgment. So this is judgment being satisfied here at this place. He made a grate of bronze network for the altar under its rim midway from the bottom. That's so the ash of the sacrifice could settle down through the grates and be removed. He cast four rings for the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles, and he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar with which to bear it. He made the altar hollow with boards. He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze, notice, from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, they got these mirrors, no doubt, from Egypt. Egypt, remember, the Egyptians, they're the, they're, there's no other culture like that before that that wore all the makeup and had their hair and all the certain things. And one of the things that Egypt also had was these looking, these looking mirrors. And they were made of bronze. And they would be highly polished so that one could see relatively clearly, clearly their reflection so that they could make sure that the eye makeup and stuff and the eyebrows were all good. Right? All you ladies completely understand that. And so these looking, uh, these looking mirrors were given as, as, as offerings towards the construction of the tabernacle, and they were used specifically to make this laver of bronze. Now, this is the washing dish, and it's full of water at all times, and it's the washing dish that the priests would wash themselves with before they entered into the actual tabernacle. The altar and the laver are in the courtyard outside, so you have a big fence all the way around, and then in the center of that fence, about the half the size of a football field, and in the center of that is the actual tabernacle. And before you would enter into the tabernacle, where fellowship with God Almighty happens, you would first 
offer a sacrifice, first things first, sin's got to be dealt with. Then there would be a cleansing. The Bible talks about washing ourselves, right? Husbands, wash your wives with the water of the word, right? Cleansing her, washing her with the water of the word. There's that cleansing process that takes place. And also, as they're washing their hands and they look down, guess who they'd see? Themselves. They would be taking an account of themselves. And it's a, it's a place of reflection. Even though a sacrifice has been made, even though sin has been atoned for, there still needs to be going forward a reflection of myself before I enter into fellowship with Almighty God. A man, the Bible says, talking about communion that we're going to take part in here shortly, a man ought to examine himself. Before this ultimate gift of fellowship that Jesus Christ personally gave us here, to actually break bread, I almost just burnt my nose hairs on this thing, to break bread with him, right, to break bread with him, this is a spiritual meal that Jesus Christ specifically told us to share together, and when we pass this around and we eat this and drink this together, we are spiritually in a very, very real way breaking bread with Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And so the Bible says before we share this together, a person ought to examine themselves. Lord, as David would say, search me and know me. See if there's a wicked way within me. Let there be nothing in us that would hold back from God. God knows you're a sinner. It's not a secret, guys. You know your guardian angel's like this half the time. Oh, my heavens, right? He knows. And so before we break bread, before we have this fellowship together with each other and with Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray and we say, Lord, Lord, examine me. Know me better than I know myself. Cleanse me. Purify me. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We ought to be daily examining ourselves like this, brothers and sisters. We talk about, you know, the four o'clock in the morning when you wake up, the hours of self-loathing, Right? Where you wake up at four in the morning, you're laying in bed, I'm a terrible husband, I'm a terrible father, I'm a terrible, you know what I mean? You know, all of the things that you don't do quite right and all the things that you have. And it's, I call them the hours of self-loathing. Those aren't bad things. It is a good thing for all of us, for each of us, to take account of ourselves. I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. I know I have the Holy Spirit that lives within me. And yet I remain a sinful man. And to examine myself and say, where can I get better? Lord, what else can I offer to you? What am I yet holding back from you? How can I do this better? Lord, help me and fill me and examine me as I examine myself. We can examine ourselves without getting depressed, Christians, because it's all already been paid for. When God looks at you because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he doesn't see you covered in your sins anymore. That's why you can enter into fellowship. That's why you go to heaven. Because he sees you covered in the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ when you ask him into your heart and make him your Lord and Savior. And so as we examine ourselves, we can do it without guilt. Conviction, godly conviction all day, every day. That's different from guilt. Worldly guilt leads to sorrow. But godly conviction leads to righteousness. Oh, Lord, I blew it. Oh, Lord, help me to do better. Oh, Lord, we take our spiritual spanking. 
right? We take our spiritual spanking. And then we get up from that and we can go away knowing, forgiven, cleansed, it's gone. That thing that I was confessing, it's gone. It's as far away from me as the east is from the west. And God doesn't even remember it anymore. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't examine ourselves. Before we enter into the tabernacle of fellowship with the Lord. He made the court on the south side. The hangings of the court were of fine woven linen. 100 cubits long. This is the court all the way around the tabernacle. There were 20 pillars for them with 20 bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. On the north side, the hangings were 100 cubits long with 20 pillars and their 20 bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. And on the west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits with 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. For the east side, the hangings were 50 cubits. The hanging on one side of the gate were 15 cubits long with their three pillars and their three sockets. And the same for the other side of the court gate on this side and that were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. All the hangings of the court all around were of fine woven linen. The sockets for the pillars were bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. And the overlay of their capitals was silver. And all the pillars of the court had bands of silver. The screen for the grate of the court was woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and of fine, uh, fine woven linen. The length was 20 cubits and the height along its width was 5 cubits corresponding to the hangings of the court. And there were four pillars with their four sockets of bronze. Their hooks were silver and the overlay of their capitals and their bands was silver. All the pegs of the tabernacle and of the court all around were bronze. This is the inventory of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the testimony which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the servant of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest, Basilel the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer, a weaver of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine linen, all the gold that was used in all the work of the holy place, that is, the gold of the offering, and I'm going to skip down here because it's giving the weights and the amounts of the precious metals that were given towards the construction of the tabernacle. Um, and and uh, verse 26 is kind of also gives us a, a little, little understanding of the size of the nation of Israel at this point in time because it says a becca for each man that is half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary for everyone included in the numbering from 20 years old and above for 603,550 men. So that's over half a million just men from that age, from the age of 23 and up. Just men, there were 653,000. So you add women, you add children, you're over a million people. This is a huge congregation. There's no movie, there's nothing that does it, that does it justice. And from the hundred talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil, one hundred sockets from the hundred talents, one talent for each socket. Then from the 1,775 shekels he made hooks for the pillars, overlaid their capitals, and made bands for them. The offering of bronze was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. And with it he made the sockets for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the bronze altar, the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils for the altar, the sockets for the court all around, the bases for the court gate, all the pegs for the tabernacle, and all the pegs for the court all around. <sighs> 
Wow. Now, listen. There's no excuse in the year 2019 for you not to be able to close your eyes and see exactly what the tabernacle looks like. And I'll tell you one word, Google. Google. You can Google the tabernacle, and there will be at your fingertips so many different pictures and diagrams and teachings about the tabernacle, what each article was and its representation. You can on your dumb phone. Is this not insane? On your little com- my computer phone, right? On your computer phone, your old people that are still, you know, I still don't understand it, you know. You know, uh, on this thing, you can study in depth the tabernacle in the wilderness. And isn't it incredible the knowledge, the vast amounts of knowledge that we have at our fingertips that we don't take advantage of? You know what I'll be checking? I'll check the weather. Check the weather. Facebook. I'm post up because outside. Got that and here, and here, We have provided for us knowledge, volumes, libraries, uh, volumes of libraries of information about the Word of God, about the tabernacle. And guess what? Nobody knows the Word. You go around and you talk to Christians and you, and you, and you, from, from all different walks of life and you, and, you, and you talk about the Bible and you maybe mention something and they're like, is that in the Bible? That's not a knockdown. I'm just saying, this is what God's given us. This is what God's given us, and he wants us to know it. He wants us to study it. So, guys, you can come on up, and now we're going to get to the best part. I love the Word, and uh, I love the fellowship that we have together, but man, oh man, you tell me that there's a way that spiritually I can actually in real life and live time break bread with Jesus? I mean, I love you guys, but this is the greatest part of church for me. This is the greatest part of church. But everything, like I said, everything in our fellowship with God comes through our faith. It comes through faith. So if you're like, sorry, pal, that's Welch's grape juice and matzo crackers from Wegmans, right? And that's all it is. Then that's all it is. Then that's all it is. And that's all it'll ever be. It's just like the woman who had the issue of blood and she approached Jesus now, she would have said to herself, it's probably not going to work. You know what I mean? He, I know he's a magic man. He's done some stuff, but he's not going to want to heal me. He's not going to want to do anything with me. I mean, I'll, I'll go. I'll, 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 maybe, I can, maybe I can touch him. Can I get your autograph? You know, whatever, but whatever. Would she, have, would she have been healed? But the Bible specifically says that as she was approaching Jesus, she already had it all settled in her mind. She said to herself, I know I know that if I simply can touch the hem of his robe, I will be healed. And so immediately when she touched his robe, God's power met and intersected with her faith, and she was instantaneously healed. Now, I'm not here to tell you that no no matter what's your ailment or no matter what's going on in your life, that God's answer for you is always 100% healing instantaneously just because you believe. He's got a different plan for everybody. I choose to live my life like this. God, whether you heal or you don't, whether you help me or whether you don't, whatever it is that you do in my life, I'm going to see it as being from you 
and a way in which you're trying to draw me closer to you that I might know you better and that I might have more of your presence in my heart and in my life. And so the circumstances themselves and the things, that's not what matters. It's, God, what are you trying to say and what are you trying to do? Help me rather than to always be seeking the healing and always be seeking the blessing, that I would instead be seeking your face and your will for my life. So often when we talk to couples who are going to be getting married or couples who are married and you know, it's, it's like, you know, when you first meet each other and it's just like, <laughs> you know, it's just, you're goo goo gaga and this and that. And then, and then, you know what happens? You know what happens to goo goo gaga love? You know what happens to it? It's called marriage. <laughs> yeah, it's called marriage. And then after that, let me tell you what happens, folks. It's a decision-making process. I choose to love my wife. I cho- not just because she's the only one that'll have me. I choose to love my wife. I choose to devote myself to her. I promised that I would in front of God and witnesses. That means a tremendous amount to me. And I choose to love her. And let me tell you something about being a Christian. And let me tell you something about being a spouse. Your heart will follow your obedience. If you're a rebel, your heart will follow that too. But your heart will follow obedience I choose to love you because I know God brought you to me, babe. And I choose to love you every single day, even when I don't want to. And your heart follows obedience. Be 22 years for me this next coming week with my wife. Let me tell you something. You, no, no, don't do that. Who cares? I mean, I, I mean I, it's, it's great, but who, you know, I, don't, I hate all that stuff. You know what I mean? I don't want, you know, pfft, you know what are we going to plaque? You know, I don't want, I, none of, I, had, I, I, I'm a weird, I am a wacko. I just don't care about any of that act. It's 22 years, like, and I know it's like, how does she do it? You know what I mean? I, that's probably what you meant. Like, oh my gosh, can you believe it? But 22 years, and I tell you, we're not together, and we're not, I can't wait to see my wife when I get home from work, usually. And she can't wait to see me. And, and, it's, it's, and you know why? Because of all the crap we've been through together. Right. It's that little kid. He said crap. Right? That, listen to me though, that's what makes our love unbreakable, impenetrable, is because of the hard times and the difficult times and the trials and the tribulations and the testings and the times of I don't like you very much, but I'm going to choose to love you because love is a choice. And so my heart follows my obedience. And her heart follows her obedience. Friends, it's the same thing with Jesus. If you believe that Jesus Christ is here today, if you believe that he wants to break bread with you, then get ready, folks, because you're about to have a meal with Jesus. Amen? Come on up, guys. Sorry, I told him to come on up like an hour ago.